Everybody, you're listening to the Drunken UX podcast. This is episode number 42, where we're going to be talking about surviving your own little special corner of website redesign hell. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other host, Aaron Hill. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing all right this evening. Uh, it's uh, we're feeling good. We're feeling uh, spicy. <laughs> I'm a spicy boy. This is the episode where we have the answer to the life, universe, everything. Oh, yeah, weren't you supposed to come up with something, like, super clever for that? I've literally had 48 hours. Well, <laughs> that is uh, six more hours than you needed for the number, so. Oh, oh that was, all right, very good. I'm, hey, I'm quick on my feet. I haven't. That was, uh, that was very witty. I'm not off the deep end yet. Um, folks, if uh, you like other witty things, be sure to run by our sponsors over at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. You can check them out for all your mapping needs, interactive maps, uh, map illustrations, uh, printed maps, all of those kinds of things. Check them out. Let them know that we sent you over so they have fun with us. What do you got there, Michael? Uh, I am drinking Cider Boys. This is the Mad Bark. I, I'm taking a different tack tonight, uh, so this is the s- apple cinnamon hard cider. Tastes kind of like, almost like a, an apple cobbler kind of uh, deal. Oh, interesting. It's it's pretty sweet, um, but it's not super sugary, which is nice, because I've had some of these before, like, or if you've ever had a, like, I like, a, what is it, Not Your Dad's Root Beer, or something like that. I have not had that, but I am interested. It's good. Okay. It's root beery and sweet. But there's so much sugar in it. It literally, a bottle of it makes my muscles hurt. There's so much sugar in it. What's the alcohol base? Is it rum? The the generic uh, stuff is just filler. That it's it's just alcohol. <laughs> it's, it's technically alcohol. <laughs> technically alcohol. Yes. I I had a I had some uh, uh, Kraken mixed with like proper root beer, like not like you know A W or Barks or whatever, but like actual. Like the legitimate root beer, yeah. it has that real like um, a little bit of the wintergreen flavor, the crispness. Um, it's pretty good. It's a nice the the two flavors blend nicely together. I like me some Kraken, so I'm I'll try yeah. that. Uh, these are nice though. They're like I say, they're easy drinking. They're very simple um, from like an ingredient standpoint. And when I because I, I, the first time I had one, I'm like, oh god, I'm gonna pay for this later because. I... <laughs> I tasted how sweet it was, and I was like, man, there's a ton of sugar in this. And, I mean, there is, but it's not just, like, corn syrup sugar. It's <laughs> cider, they, so. That, that should be their label. So good, you'll pay for this twice. No. <laughs> Maybe not the spirit they're going for, but. <laughs> you are witty tonight. I know. Just wait. What do you I, got over there? I've got, uh, after... Last episode, you were talking about having Basil Hayden, and I was like, oh, man, I want some of that. And then I realized I had just enough for one more glass left in my bottle, so that's what I've got tonight. I've got it. I poured it on the rocks uh, because it's very warm here. Did you muddle like a nice fresh basil leaf into it? No, I I hadn't thought to do that. Is that good? Oh, because of the name. Seems appropriate. It actually, to me, it has kind of an herbal-y mellow to it 
that would I think serve actually quite well. You're probably right. It, my my basil plant actually just died recently, but um, next time I get a bottle of this, I will also get another basil plant. Try that out, or at least some basil leaves, fresh ones. Yeah, let me know how it is. Then yeah. I won't ruin mine if uh, if it's terrible. <laughs> Folks, if you want to know more about what we're drinking, what we're doing, where we are, where we're going, be sure to follow us on all of the social media, wherever you want to uh, track us down. We are on Twitter and Facebook at Slash Drunken UX. You can also hit us up on Instagram at Slash Drunken UX Podcast. You can chat with us anywhere you want to, but mostly just from Slack. Uh, that's DrunkenUX.com slash Slack, and it will get you right into our channel, and you can give us topic suggestions, drink suggestions, uh... Drink suggestions, especially, I, I have, we've had a few recommendations from people in the Slack channel so far, and they've all been awesome. So we have been very, uh, very susceptible to <laughs> suggestion on this show when it comes to like what we're drinking. So I think that's fair. In fact, we haven't had a Vesper Martini in a while, so I may have to cue that back up. I, I just heard a friend of mine from Ithaca, uh, who also works in higher ed. He recommended, or he was drinking a Vesper Martini at a bar one night, but he said that you actually can't make a real Vesper Martini anymore because the... You can't get the Le Blanc. Yes. Oh, no, no, you can't get, not the Le Blanc, but you can't get the original thing that they would use. It was like uh, something with quinine, like it had a, a oh. quinine flavor to it. Um, and so like the Le Blanc is like the closest um, gotcha. modern... Analog. I can't find Lele Blanc either, so... Yeah. So, I want to talk first, before we jump into redesign stuff, um, there was an article that came across my radar that was kind of cool, because um, it gets into a couple things that we've talked about at length, one being CSS, one being accessibility. And what this is, is uh, uh, over... It's at a Eric Egert's blog, um, at yatil, uh, Y-A-T-I-L dot net. And he was writing this article on the way you can use CSS content to do design that is also accessible. Mm -hmm. This is a weird thing, so stick with me for a second, because I, I have okay. to kind of lay it out. I have to paint you a word picture, as it were. Okay. Okay. So you know how you can use the content property in CSS to append things to elements? Yes. So, so yes. for instance, if you are... Uh, making a link that goes away, you can use after content to put in like a little SVG icon that, you know, like Wikipedia does with a little away right. arrow. Uh, right. Or, or append something like the letters PDF to a link if it's a download for a PDF. Yeah, I remember doing that in like the mid-2000s. That was a, yeah. a hot hot thing back then. And people use CSS content for a lot of stuff, especially like um, presentational elements like M dashes or, or arrows. Um, CSS before when used on a list item when you want like a like a special graphic that isn't right yeah so so we've got this this property we can use for it, it inserting content in, into a layout now for a long time browsers had no clue what to do with that the content wasn't in the page it wasn't in the DOM so browsers just ignored it which meant screen readers just skipped over it mm-hmm not great, especially like in the case of, you know, if you've got a link and you're attaching something, you know, like you say external link or something next to it, that right. that would mean somebody using a screen reader would miss out on that and wouldn't 
know that extra context before they interacted with it. Okay, well, you're supposed to. I'm. You're supposed to put it in the title. Well, title I, I, of course, yes, yeah. you're supposed to, but yeah, we know that that doesn't always happen, especially <laughs> when you start getting into design. Right. This is where this starts to kind of take a curve. People were using that to their advantage in typography. So, for instance, have you you seen like when uh, people will have a sentence or a header or something like that? Yeah, and they will use before and after content in CSS to duplicate that text. And they'll offset it, like, up and left and down and right, and they'll, like, do them oh. each different colors for, like, that sort of staggered font effect, you know? Yeah, I actually, that's interesting. I didn't know how they did that. Yeah, or, like, a, or like a streaky font or something. Yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll do that by layering after content, after content, after content, whatever. Cool. And, and it worked because screen readers wouldn't pay any attention to that, except now they do. <laughs> Browsers started supporting that because they realized people were putting actual content in those things because that's what it's there for. Is, so they, is the issue that the screen readers weren't interpreting the CSS before and now they are? Or is the issue that the screen readers haven't changed, but the browsers are changing how they interpret it? Um, that's a good question that I think is maybe a distinction without a difference. Okay. Well, it's just who do you ask? Like... Not who do you blame, but like, who do you who would you have to go to to resolve this? I I think that if I remember the way it was phrased in the article, I think it was at least framed as the browsers began interpreting the content okay. into the the DOM tree that then gets sent to the screen readers um, when that hmm. happens. Now I may be wrong about that, but like I said, I, I it doesn't exactly matter because all that matters is the outcome was that if you did, and the example they use is a header with uh, it duplicated once before, once after, mm -hmm. which meant that header was in there three times. And so a screen reader would hit it, and it would read it three times as a result. Yeah, yeah. Even though the first two times were totally for nothing but presentation. They weren't there uh, to actually be content. This is This is weird because I... I'm not blaming the screen readers for this. The screen readers are just doing their job. This is why I asked that question earlier. I think the browsers are not handling this right. This is done in the CSS, right? Like it's a CSS pseudo property. It's yeah, it's done in CSS, but it is literally called content. Yeah. So I mean, it's it is meant to display stuff. The you know, I, I think there is obviously an argument over. Is that the right place to put genuine content versus yeah. like little bits of presentational stuff? Um, that's certainly debatable. But they found a really novel workaround to this okay. that, that turns out to be super elegant. Uh, okay. So remember when we were talking about the future of CSS uh, back in what was it, episode 39? Right. Thir 39? 40? 40. 82? 40. Was it 40? 40. Um, 40 sounds right. So. If you go back and listen to that episode, we talked a little bit about CSS functions and how we have a lot of them already. People just don't use them a lot. Right. There's a function called attribute, ATTR. Okay. And what it does is it will get the value of an attribute and let you do something with it. Okay. So what they, the solution that they found to this was uh, there is an ARIA attribute, ARIA label. Okay. And, yeah, and I do know that can, one. 
you can put Aria label on anything for the most part. Anything that supports a title and has content inside of it, you can put an Aria label in. And sure. Aria label is red instead of the content that is inside of it. That's right. It's it is okay. considered superior for the screen reader. So right. that if for some reason you do need to give the screen reader more context, perhaps than what is, uh, you know, maybe like if you're using visual cues, for instance, you may translate those in the words for the aria label. Um, but what they found was they could do their header, use the aria label attribute, which in this case would just say the same thing as the content inside but of only it. Only once. It, yeah, it wouldn't matter yeah. because the screen reader is going to read it the same way either way. But then yeah. they, as the value for the content property they just say you know attribute aria label and mm -hmm. the fact that there was now before and after content no longer matters because aria label takes over for all of it right right so huh. now they they took this this thing that was broken and people were using to something that broke you know, because it was quote unquote fixed, you know, they fixed the bug, quote unquote, to using another workaround to get the same effect. But now it's all like, it's more technically appropriate as a solution now. The CSS function is using, it's still mm -hmm. using before and after. Yeah. But it, now, but now the content is being like put in place via the attribute ARIA label. It's, yeah, it, they're right. still using before and after. But it's not read three times because right. Aria label exists. Got it. And so cool. that that simple fact just means that the screen reader can look at it and it sees, hey, we've got content with before and after, but we were also given an Aria label, and we are told to trust the Aria label above all else. Right. And so that's right. what gets read. So not specifically related to that, but related to Aria label, I, we've been doing an accessibility playbook at my job. And so I've had to like research a lot about ARIA tags and things and when to use them, how to use them. And so there's, there's ARIA label and there's ARIA labeled by, Yep. and then there's like just a label tag proper. And so I, I wrote down the specifics the other day. Uh, maybe I'm, hopefully I'll get these right. So if you have an ARIA label, you do not use ARIA labeled by also, you can't use them together. Right, because the label applies to the node that it is on. Yes, yes. And so, but it also, if you have a formal label tag, like the HTML label element, you also wouldn't use either of those. Right, because, because the label has its own associating. Right, because then you get mechanic. into the ARIA roles, right? Right. Like you can have an ARIA right. role navigation, but you don't yeah. have to say aria role navigation on the nav element because its intrinsic value is navigation there's so the uh the w3 aria specification it's it's a dense read but it's really interesting if you can take the time and sit down and actually like uh kind of pour through it it has it has some tables in it that will say things like uh, for these kinds of elements, these are the, the roles you can apply. And with those roles, these are the ARIA tags, excuse me, that you can use with it. Uh, my, my hat's off to accessibility experts. This is, there's like so much information to learn in here. Um, but uh, it's, it's cool stuff. If you, if you work with the content side of things, I highly recommend uh, taking a gander through that. It's a good, it's a good uh, excuse for why 
learning accessibility can be quite useful to making, you know, making things better and making your content better in the yeah. long run. So if, if you want to check it out, run by the blog. I will have a link to it in the show notes uh, over at drunkenux.com. Um, they've got that example there that I was talking about that walks you through it. So if, if our explanation and description of it was not good enough, it's a short read. It's actually, it's very quick to get through and it makes a lot of sense when you see it done in space, especially the example, like understanding why somebody would do the thing I was describing may be hard here, but yeah. when you see it in practice, it makes a lot of sense. That sort of seventies effect of layered font and <laughs> you know, when, and, and you'll think about, You'll see, you've seen it other places, and you'll know you've seen it other places. They, they used to on the state of that state of CSS 2019. Did um, they? I, did, I don't even remember. On at least I think that's how they did it. The C on the CSS has kind of a. Oh, you know what? I think they're using drop shadow. Never mind. I lied. All the tricks. They're, they. I think they use literally every CSS thing possible to do that like 90s style logo. So. I would forgive them. Anyways, I put a link for the the Aria W three document in the show notes. It's it's very, uh, if you've ever read like an RFC or anything, like it's like that level of specificity. <laughs> but um, but yeah, check it out. Can't can't hurt to dig in. Yeah. So this week we want to talk though at in in depth about website redesigns, <laughs> and this is a think of this like a fireside chat. I got. <laughs> I got my cider boys. Aaron's got his Basil Hayden. We're going to sit back and dig into our well of experience here and talk to you about the redesigns we've gone through, the challenges we've faced, and and what you should be kind of on the lookout for, what warning signs there are that something bad may be about to happen. I see him counting on his fingers in the uh, video. Go all the way back. Remember in uh, last season when we talked about the first websites we built? Yeah, I just, I'm just thinking, back. professionally speaking, like where I've been paid on a W two salary to work for someone, I have worked on a minimum of seven full site redesigns. Oh God! And four of them were at one employer. Or no, no, three of them were at one employer, three of them were at another, and then one of them was at an earlier one. That's not including ones I've done personally for my own sites. Yeah, okay, I'll 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 exclude those. I will go the same way you did. Yeah. Redesigns that I was involved with where I was paid to be involved. Mm-hmm. I think my number is 8. Yep. Um now some of those were, you know, some of those were places I worked, some of those I was hired as a consultant to drive okay. for them. Some of those, you know, I've been part of a team. Some of them I was the only person. <laughs> so you know, some of these sites were small some of them were big uh, there's there you know I, I i like the salt and pepper to my experience there because i feel like i really have kind of done everything as many wrong ways as you can possibly do it so that you know how to do it right <laughs> next time let me say okay so the very first redesign i ever did was when i worked for a, a municipality and I redid their I okay, I I both redesigned the site, but I also um built a CMS. This was before WordPress had pages, so WordPress was just posts. So WordPress wasn't really an option for this. Yeah, you're going back to like one point five or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. before two point oh. 
but but I have to say, like, so I was I was learning PHP and MySQL. I built the entire site to be like database driven dynamic content. I built a CMS backend for for maintaining like articles essentially. And my favorite part of this, and I'm really sad that they don't have this anymore, but my favorite part was that I took the entire entire corpus of the city code, like all of the laws that apply to the citizens of the city, and I put it up into a searchable, like full text searchable database with um, like topic tags and everything. So if you wanted to know, oh, what laws apply to bicycles or what laws apply to parking, you can go on the site and a little search box, you type, you know, you can do like a Boolean search because that was supported with full text searches in MySQL then. Uh, and you can search for like bicycles minus, uh, I don't know, unicycles or whatever. And it will show you all of the individual parts of the city code that apply to that. It was really cool. So you built Municode. That's what you did. <laughs> you built the Municode I, website. Did, did Municode exist then? I don't know. I this is like no idea. 2004, I think, or right around there. Anyways, it was, I, I, in hindsight, I don't recommend building a CMS. <laughs> um, Step one, you know you're on the road to a bad redesign. Your boss says, hey, why don't you just build the CMS? <laughs> well, okay, so, like, it's some irony that, like, you know, I did that, but then a later job when I worked in higher ed, um, we kind of built a CMS. Uh, one of my colleagues... Um, he helped build, it was actually really cool. The entire editor was all like, like you're viewing the site, you click on an area of the doc of the page, and then you can edit it. If it's an editable region, it was really cool. And our, our people really liked it. And it, the only reason it's not being used is because marketing one decided to go in a different direction or whatever. I don't know. There's some kind of like higher up political reasons that that didn't happen. But I mean, it's sort of building a CMS, but it was like way better than the one that I built. So I, I think that it's okay. So it's that's a good chance to kind of start with, I think, maybe the first thing, which is how <laughs> what what are the bad reasons to jump into a redesign? And I think that's, you know, let's start with the bad <laughs> so we can kind of work towards the good and end on a high note. I think a bad reason would be because I want to learn PHP. <laughs> That's fair. Uh... <laughs> I mean, that wasn't exactly my reason for doing the one, but if that's yeah, not, yeah. I'm not saying I've never done a project where I've been like, I'd love to learn that. Let's build something in it. Um, <laughs> but I've done that. One of the big ones, and I, I've heard this myself and I don't love it, is we don't like it anymore. We don't like our side anymore, or somebody doesn't like our side anymore. It's, so, it's somebody not like a random public person, but like somebody with decision-making influence. Right, yeah. yeah. The, the idea of somebody not liking something, that's a bad reason to commit yeah. to a redesign. Especially one person, or one group. Right. Um, you know, depending on your site, and some of this, and I've been a warn folks now like some of what we're gonna say tonight is gonna fluctuate and and i'll try to <laughs> i will try to clarify when i'm saying something about like a big site versus a small site so for instance 
if it's your personal site, if it's your blog or your you know oh, portfolio, that's, that's and different. you don't like it anymore, that yeah, that is very different from being at a company with a site that serves you know tens of thousands of page views a day and has hundreds of thousands of users and you know has a marketing board that comes in and says they don't like it. That's a very different thing. If it's your site representing you or something that you maintain and you're the person who is responsible for doing the labor to make any changes to it, then you can pick any reason you want for doing a redesign <laughs> because you won't pick a stupid one because you're going to have to be the one to do the work. Yeah. Accountability helps. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. I, I would file, I had this as a separate bullet item, but I think it falls under this one. The, the make it pop thing. I, anyone, and I'm, I'm sure some of you out there might be groaning right now. Anyone who's ever worked in web has heard that phrase, like, we need to make it pop. And I don't know who first said that, but... <sighs> I mean, that goes Terrible. all the way back to the print design days. Clearly. That goes, that goes way back to all kinds of marketing when everybody needed to stand out. Everybody was trying yeah. to, you know, get that full page ad in, uh, you know, whatever comic book was coming out next. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, make, I don't read comics. I think, I think the reason that make it pop is such a frustrating phrase is because the people who are saying or asking for it to be made to pop generally don't know specifically what that means or they don't know what it requires to achieve popping but well, yeah it, it doesn't mean anything it's an empty statement yeah. and and that's the same way with i don't like it anymore i don't care yeah. if you don't like it anymore liking it isn't a measurable quantity and nor do i yeah. know what to do to make you like it now right right if you say hey when you come to our site, you can't even tell what our brand is. You know, you can't That's tell legitimate. who we are. You know, you don't. Yeah. Our identity is hidden because all we use are blacks and whites and grays. Sure. That I can work with. And that becomes justification to actually start redesigning something because now I have an actionable thing. I understand the complaint. Yeah. And that can be hard. And And I would say also if you've done um you know user surveys and you know people have explicitly said that the site feels boring or uninteresting or they just have trouble finding any content because they just it just all bleeds together and, you know if that's actual feedback you're getting from real users um who have no dog in the fight so to speak then i mean that's legitimate and something to consider but then that's grounds for user testing and yeah, then when yeah. they say that, you can ask them, well, what do you mean by X? Right. Because right. it's still, even then, like, while it's still indicative of a problem, you don't know what the problem is with those kinds of amorphous phrases. So right. anytime you hear those, those should be signals to say, well, let's stop and identify what is the actual need? What is the actual issue? I think that goes into another one that I think you and I have both heard a bunch, which is the, like, it's time. Yeah. Like, as if there's, like, an expiration date when, when you do a site. But, I, I mean, I've, I've definitely heard that before where it's typically upper management will make these requests and they'll just say, like, you know, we haven't redesigned it in a while. It's time to do it. I don't think it's wrong. 
but I think that it's incomplete. The mistake isn't saying that it's time. The mistake is that you're not saying what the, like, what's the underlying problem? Like, you know, okay, like, it looks stale. Like, it's time as it's like, is it 14 months a magical number? Or is it that, like, you know, the, the industry, our industry, our competitors are all kind of looking like more contemporary and we look kind of like five years ago, which could be exactly what it is. But like you need to have more specificity and just saying alone, like it's just it's time for a redesign isn't enough because then you don't know like what the criteria are for success. How do you know when it is when the time is up? Your website is not a toothbrush (laughs) (laughs) or oil in your car. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah, it's not the kind of thing that. Yep, it's been six months. It's been 3000 miles. Time to go. (laughs) Like that's we 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 say this, but later on in the show we're going to talk about how content and code both rot. So like, <laughs> it, it, there's there is no clock. That's the important part. Yeah. And with that, to what you were just saying too, this idea of like you know what is your business cycle on? Do your customers start to look around or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. Those are good questions. But the general idea of just well, we just need to be competitive. Our website's yeah. not competitive anymore. Okay. Why? What, what does that mean? Why is it yeah. not competitive? What is it not doing? And then when you tell me what it's not doing, then we can look at yes. addressing that. And that So that could it could mean our sales are down. Like we're converting less. Uh we're getting fewer visitors, which is resulting in fewer sales. I, I mean like if you have a measurable conversion that you can track and you're seeing less of that, then that's totally legitimate reason. And you'll find it rare that the reason like a conversion drops isn't because your design stayed the same. <laughs> like that, that's not how variables work. Um, you, you know, if, if your, your design can get old and stale, that is absolutely true. But the idea that something that was generally effective stops being effective is indicative of a different kind of problem okay so you're gonna have to do a shot now because i want to mention steve krug but damn it <laughs> i don't have shots i'm you drinking steve... beer tonight that means i have to chug the rest of this do you realize how many bottles of this i'm gonna go through you just have to do a sip in in uh don't make me think steve krug talks he uses amazon heavily as an example of like really solid usability and and I, I'm going to use it here as kind of a contra example, because I think that the period when Krug wrote that book, Amazon's site was actually like very usable. It was in a very good place. And I don't think the current iteration of the site is. I think it's a hot mess. And And I think that that's probably their redesign probably came around because they were trying to be more competitive or because it was time or because they wanted to, I don't even know, sell more stuff or something. but. I just, I think that's, yeah. Amazon's an, a weird case, too, and I, that may even be worthy of its own episode at some point, because I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm like, you know, it's, for as much as you, you will pull examples from a place like Amazon, and, you know, that, we'll talk here a little bit about the follow the leader mentality, the reality to me is that Amazon has a, they're above the rules, basically, like, yeah. And Google is another one. Like some of these companies, they actually get to violate 
what we otherwise consider to be sort of the laws of UX. Certainly an outlier. Yeah. I, I mean, like you look at like when you talk about like a site reliability engineering, a site like Twitter is they're they're in their own category because they have so much like traffic velocity that it's just your site will never have the level of velocity Twitter has. Yeah. Ever. Genning, generating more leads though is that that is a tactical change. Yeah. That is a singular thing that you attack that you don't resolve by redesigning your site. You deal with it by re-architecting your lead generation process. And that may mean business logic changes as much as website changes. I, I think related to that one too is also when people look at things like page hits and then they're equating that with overall site performance. And and I'm not saying that the number of page hits doesn't bear some utility. It, it's useful when you look at like the overall, when you look at your year over year cadence, you know, these days a week, we have more users. These months of the year, we have more or less users. That's useful. It's good to know that. But the number of users doesn't necessarily equate to sales specifically. I guess unless you're making revenue from ad displays, that would that would be that would be different. But if you're if you're doing student like recruitment or sales or whatever else, like you want to actually look at your actual conversions rather than just purely like a single um, indirect stat like site hits. Yeah, and any time that somebody brings up something like we need more traffic. Mm -hmm. That should be an immediate red flag under any kind of web project because single dimension metrics are garbage and they're useless. <laughs> if somebody says we need more traffic or we need to decrease bounce rate or we need to improve the time on site. Mm -hmm. No, you don't have to do any of those things. The, the time on site always boggles me because... <laughs> <laughs> like do do you really expect the users to just like you know sign onto the site and just hang out yeah like, like hey the, guys like what's up just hang out of here and <laughs> single dimensionality is used a lot because it's so simple to convey but it is yeah. ultimately a throwaway statistic and the only way to make those those metrics valuable is to give them a second dimension generally yeah compared to some sort of conversion um, or right. some kind of goal that the website has. Because what you want to know is what is our ratio of traffic to conversions? You know, are the people who spend more time on the site more likely to buy? You may discover that the people who come to your site and spend 30 seconds there are the yeah. most likely to buy your thing on impulse. And that if they spend eight minutes on your page, they never once convert. So right. higher time on site in, in that situation turns out to be a terrible reason to do a redesign because it's counterintuitive to what you actually should be doing. Right. There's And even then, like some of that stuff, then you have to ask that question of why. Why do you know, people on the site shorter times buy more? When you're, when you're faced with any of these as a reason to do a website, you should do the five whys. You know, get, really get down to kind of the nut of the issue. Because a lot of the reasons that we kind of get superficially thrown out there, they're not elucidating the problem enough. So you have to kind of question your way into it. You're still using big words. You need to drink more of your bourbon. 
<laughs> elucidating. What kind of fancy kind of person are you? Oh, it just fell out of my mouth. That's like 18 <laughs> syllables, man. Well, if you'll allow me, I want to go on a rant. Mm -hmm. um, this partly goes back to a, a talk I gave, my God, eight years ago. And I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to quote numbers from this talk that I did. They're old numbers, so take them with a grain of salt. I did kind of try to scrounge around a little bit to see if I could find newer ones, but uh, I was unsuccessful. However, I think, you know, when I went back and was thinking about it, I'm not sure that there's a good reason why in this time frame these numbers would have changed a ton. Uh, mm -hmm. so I'm going to share them and you can agree or disagree with me. And if I find better data, I'll be happy to share it. This premise is based on the idea that full redesigns are just wildly inefficient. They are a terrible way to go about improving your website. And that's true in the best of circumstances. It becomes even worse if you're starting from one of the bad premises that we've already talked about. So if you're already coming in with one of these like weird, vague uh, assessments of why you need a site redesign, this makes it that much worse. So this data goes back. It's a study that was done by HubSpot back in 2011. Uh, and what they found, they talked to a bunch of marketers about uh, website redesigns. And what they found was a third of marketers were not happy with the last redesign they were a part of. Hmm. So 33%-ish. Only half or just under half, actually, finished and launched on time. <laughs> because that never happens. I mean, it's it really is a flip of a coin whether or not you're actually going to finish this thing when you're supposed to. Only 24% would have qualified themselves as extremely happy. So less than a quarter of them feel like they came in and got what they really wanted out of that deal. And the, the stat that I always love is 68% of marketers had been in a redesign in a year or less, even though about a third of them say you should only do it every two to three years. So okay. there's a, a very big gap in the practice what you preach section of the choir for that. I mean, you're, you're looking at almost three quarters of the marketers surveyed had redesigned a site in less than a year. Mm -hmm. that, <laughs> that is demonstrating a frightening cycle of churn. Because a lot of marketers, especially new ones, when they come into a company, they tend to feel that need to like make their mark, right? You gotta, yeah. you gotta put your stamp on things and and rebrand or remessage and do all this. And a lot of them see a oh. redesign as a way to do that. That should also that should be added to the bad reasons for redesign. Yeah, yeah, because, because I'm a new hire. Because I'm a new hire. <laughs> but that happens in a lot of places, and not just in this industry. Like a lot of industries have that that sort of problem of. Somebody new comes in with power, and they have to kind of establish themselves, so they're looking for that yeah. that flag-planting moment. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately for marketing, they're looking for a very forward-looking, visible thing for that, and the website makes for an easy target in a lot of cases. Yeah. What they found was in the redesigns that were done, they spent... Roughly between $54,000 and $69,000 to complete that redesign. And it generally took, on average, about 5.1 months to do that whole project. Now It's about 11000 11, a month. Yeah, so to put that yeah. into context, and this is just one of those kind of, hey, maybe don't redesign. 
you're basically saying you could go out and hire a full-time web developer for about $127,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Or two really great web developers for a year. Or three pretty okay web developers for a year. You, you can empower yourself to do a lot with that money and that time if that's what you're after. I, I think just as the devil's advocate here for business, I, I, a budgetary issue would be that the spending a one-time cost on a contract like that would be allocated differently than allocating payroll money. Because um, there's additional like overhead and everything that comes in with that. However, you could hire them as contract employees and see how that works. Um, or, you know, if you're doing them on a if you're doing redesigns on a regular basis, you really should have more web people on hand because you absolutely can do them in house. Yeah. So the the uh, magic word that you said was one time, mm -hmm. and the reality is that most places. Don't go through this problem one time. Yeah. No, they, they speaking of experience, yeah. they do not. They go through it <laughs> frequently and it becomes very quickly apparent that, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe you're not spending all that money in total every year, but mm. I think you can definitely make the case for the value of a redesign not generally being worth it. Yeah. And like I say, I'm I'm passionate about this idea. I think redesigns generally aren't a good use of time, money, resources, especially when money is being spent. If the difference is mm -hmm. between sending that money away or bringing people into the fold that can help you, you know, long term, investing in yourself is always the better, uh, better value on that. And keeping in mind that when you do a full website redesign, it's never just design, never just right. design. It's always including supplemental stuff, whether that means you're doing content writing, you're changing your IA, you're doing a new CMS implementation, you're swapping out other hardware or other supplemental technologies like your email marketing system. All of these things add scale and increase the inefficiency of the project because what happens is everybody goes, well, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so we might as well do these other things too, even though those other things mm -hmm. aren't always immediately related to the value of the project i will also say that if you are a middle like a middle-sized organization and so I, i'm saying like a large size organization would be something like a really really big company like google or amazon middle size would be like most higher rate institutions so like that size or smaller if you're doing a redesign you can separate the redesign itself from the execution of the redesign provided that the designers you go to are web savvy if they give you uh you know the html and css layouts with components and everything else you can hand them off to your on staff web people and then they can like execute and implement it in place um or in your staging environment or whatever and that will save you a lot over time because the whatever you're paying your web people is probably less than what you'd be paying these contractor uh or the 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 firm to do it for you and a lot of that is really just like it just you have to throw time at it you know applying a new template restructuring content moving files around just takes time and it's not difficult 
the difficult stuff is in making the design itself. It's, I mean, and this all goes back to why I'm so like opposed to this idea of the redesign because no matter how you slice it, it's an expensive process. Yeah. It's yeah. you're either sending money away or you're spending your own, you know, salary uh, basis on it. But no matter how you cut it, it's a huge sort of, I don't want to say a black hole because you generally will get something <laughs> out of it in the end. But um, it just has such a huge margin of error. Go back to that stat, 49% finish and launch on time. Jeez. You know, that's, that's so hard. Like, how do you, how do you know when? Like, how can you possibly set a target date for when a work that includes unknown duration, like, pieces? I, I just, that every redesign I've worked on has had, like, a deadline, but none of them have ever made the deadline. The deadlines are arbitrary, right? They're always yeah. just kind of picked out of thin air, and they're set at the very onset of a project rather than weighing it you know and and doing it part way through <laughs> they they tend to be politically arbitrary they're they're set uh and this is something that my, was my experience from higher ed at least they tend to be set by people who um are like oh well obviously we want the website done before students return right in the fall and <laughs> it's like okay well we understand that let's set a target two months before that maybe like right after commencement because it will probably take longer. So if if you want to do this and do it right, you know, if you're in a in a bind and you know redesign is coming and you want to at least try to set yourself up for success, there are some things you can do though, and these are the how to weather the storm kind of uh, points. Mm. First and foremost, um, and one of the most important things to any project, let alone a redesign, is make sure you know what your key performance indicators are before you start. That's when you, if you've ever heard somebody throw around the phrase KPI, mm. KPI is the thing that matters. What is the thing you will measure that will tell you what is working and what isn't? The reason you need to know it before you redesign is because you need a baseline. Yeah. You can't redesign and then say, hey, how is this thing doing if that thing didn't even exist beforehand? It's it's how you it's how you protect yourself as as the team doing the work for afterwards. You can say, based on these KPIs that we were in this data we were given beforehand, this is how we're performing now. And so the redesign was this much successful. If the number of leads you get in a day is considered a KPI, you know, that that mm -hmm. goes back to this this argument, right? Well, we need to generate more leads. OK, well, that's a goal. And it's a goal we can measure that is one KPI among many that we would consider in a redesign. Mm -hmm. So we know what, what is our number? Is it five? Is it 50? Whatever it is, how much do you want to increase that? What do you think the capacity is? Can we increase it by 20%, 8%? Let's set a goal and then identify why the changes you're going to make in the redesign should affect that. If they say yeah. we, we're getting 10 a day, we think we can get 12 a day. And we think these changes will do it. That's a very well-defined kind of strategy then. Because now you can go back, you can do that, measure it for six months, and then see, did our average go up to 12? Did it go down to eight? Then measure that and, and figure it out. And, and really, and this kind of gets back to your original point of you don't need to do a redesign. 
if you can identify things with that level of specificity, then you can probably just do an A-B test with what you already have right. and just make that one change and then actually see how much of a lift did we get when we did this. When we put the make the button blue and put it on the right side of the form, uh, you know, how much, what's the percentage of increase in conversions? You don't need to do a full site redesign for that. You could do that in a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> or, excuse me, you can do that in a week. Yeah, you I'm, work I'm not going to work on the weekend. Uh, yeah. I say that, and that and that's never true. <laughs> the The other side of that argument, though, the KPI thing, is to also make sure you know what is working. Yeah. Because you, you don't want to throw out the stuff that's working that already, and, because there's no possible way at all that your website is a complete and utter failure across the board. Mm. Maybe if you're coming into a site that was designed 15 years ago and was never updated, sure. But... <laughs> Generally speaking, if you've got a site that is relatively modern in any aspect and has had any attention paid to it, and you're at a company yeah, that makes okay. money, the site is doing something well. Fair, fair. And if you don't know what those things are, you risk doing more damage than less. Mm -hmm. You're going to change things that you shouldn't have changed. You know, Maybe the reality yeah. is you're getting a great number of leads, and one of the goals of the redesign is that uh, they want to change the the branding of the company. And this is one of those reasons that you'll hear from mm. time to time. The branding of the company is changing, so the site has to change. New color palette, new logos. We're trying to, uh, we're trying to appeal to 17 to 34-year-old chimps, uh, <laughs> whatever that list looks like. And so... If you're making that change, but you know your lead generation system is rock solid, you want to be careful about how you change stuff around it, because while they want to increase their appeal to that demographic, you don't want to throw out the old demographic necessarily. Yeah, if you and this and this gets back to the points we made earlier about asking why, if you know, if you can get that that problem set really specified, then you can be sure that. You know, you may, maybe you think, so your, your new person's coming in and they're saying like, we need to increase our page hits. Like, okay. And like, let's say that you didn't ask why, and you're just like, okay. And so you do all the right things to increase your page hits. But in the process of doing the redesign, you eliminated parts of the page that were actually crucial to converting into sales on your site. And then now like your sales are going down, but your page hits are going up. Right. And so that's why it's really important to make sure, like you were saying, don't do single dimension metrics. Find out how these things cor correct, connect, find out what you're doing well and what you want to change, want to do better with. I guess in short, like don't don't treat the problem superficially. Do your homework. Ask the questions. Yeah. And the this KPI kind of argument also goes all the way back to the very first thing we said. You know, this idea that, you know, somebody came in and said, well, they don't like it. Yeah. Not liking it isn't a KPI. And <laughs> if somebody comes in and says, well, I don't like it, I don't care. Because generally speaking, the people, you know, if, if it's your management or another group within your company or the sales division or whoever, <laughs> if they're coming to you and saying, well, we don't like this, you know, it doesn't work for us. We're going to read. We, we want to redesign the site because all this stuff is bad. It takes a firm hand to sit them down and say you know what but you're not the user i need a i need a kpi to 
anchor this to and we'll work on that. But if you aren't the user, you're not going to affect that. I'm not saying I endorse this strategy. However, a previous employer, a former coworker, and I'm not saying who, who was involved in this, but a former coworker, uh, the boss had said basically they don't like this one thing, even though it was, it was the right thing to do, but the boss just didn't like it because it didn't approve their sensibilities, whatever. So what my former coworker did was uh, the, the site was part of uh, an application where you would have been signed in already with a single sign-on. And so they made it so that if you were signed on and your um, username was this one username, which was the boss's username, then the site would render this section of the of the page one particular way. And for everyone else, it would render it the normal way. <laughs> it actually worked. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how to take that. I don't know if that's ingenious <laughs> or if that should get you fired. <laughs> the whole reason that I even know about this was because I was looking through the code and I was like, why is so-and-so's username in the code here? And then they were like, oh, okay, so... <laughs> I mean, but it does, it goes to the superficiality of some of those requests and yeah. and how important or not, as the case may be, to the business value of those decisions. KPIs are all about business value. It's all about identifying the things that are worth doing, why they're worth doing it, and how you make sure that you're getting that out of it. And you can't do that on a whim. You can't do it on emotion. Yeah. You know, this idea of, Somebody who just instinctually can sniff the skies and know a tornado is coming. That's <laughs> just not how it works in this field. It's th there is, you know, I say there's a lot of art to good design and all of this, and that's true, but there's also a shit ton of science that tells us the way humans behave and, and the way we can measure things and the way we can figure stuff out. Put it this way you're, you're effectively making, let's say, a $100,000 wager. And so. Maybe you can't identify a sure thing, but don't you want to know as much as you possibly can to make the right decision before you drop 100K? Yeah. Like, if if you're working from subjective things like, oh, well, I just don't like it. It doesn't pop enough or whatever. You know, and that's that's the level of detail you have. Like, do you really want to be throwing $100,000? I mean, even if it's them paying for it. Like, really? <laughs> so the next part of this is to make sure that you've got a redesign coming, make sure, because, you know, the the word redesign has that keyword in it, design. And like mm -hmm. we said, the, the redesigns rarely are scoped that small. What you'll end up realizing is that you need to make sure that somebody is taking the time to align strategy, get your mm -hmm. technology stacks in order, get your designers on the same page, and get content people involved. Because generally speaking all of those things are very likely going to get touched at some point and get stakeholders involved early. Yes. Oh yes. Anybody you can talk to that is going to have an opinion, they need to have their moment in the sun. Yeah. And it should be early before you make, before you move a lot of mountains. I, I more than one of the redesigns I, I worked on, there was, stakeholders and and really like i mean they were shown the mocks beforehand and i, I don't know if they just ignored them or yes 
lacked vision or what, but they later on they came back and said like, oh, we don't like this color. It's like it was in it was in the mock. What do you mean you don't like it? Like, so it's like you know five hours of my day. You have to be prepared for some of that too, though, because the reality is, no matter I don't know how many times I say that in the course of an episode, the reality is the uh, the reality is that. People do ignore the comps. They do ignore the mock-ups. Mm -hmm. They don't pay attention to the way content is laying out. They don't pay attention to the lorem ipsum or, or even the real content in mm -hmm. some cases. Like You have to be prepared for that because most of the time those folks are sitting in a meeting that was scheduled for them or showed up on their calendar, so they're just there. And they're that's where, that's where the PM comes in. You got to have – either you have to have a formal PM – who's overseeing the project, or you have to have someone on that side of the table who will advocate for follow-up with all the stakeholders and stay on them and make sure that they're kept up to speed on things. Because I'm serious. like this, this will bite you in the ass every time. Wrangle your stakeholders early. Which PM are you referring to? A project manager. Okay. I didn't know if you were going towards yeah. product or project. Because yeah. for some places, it is the product manager's job to deal with that. I It could see either one. I I, I meant project manager. If, if you outsource, your project manager may be the guy at the other company who doesn't have a lot of direct contact. It needs to be someone who can contact your stakeholders. Yeah. That's that's the thing, is just making sure the right people are empowered there. Uh, and it's also important because, you A, you need that person to align all of these different silos so they're on the same drumbeat. Because many times, they're all on their own cycle. Your mm -hmm. IT department, if you show up a week before you're ready to start putting stuff in and say, hey, we're launching oh, a they new will... CMS. Yeah, they'll laugh at yeah. you. <laughs> you don't surprise them with requests like that. Because they may be developing 17 other things right now. All of which have at least the appearance of more importance because of the CEO wanting them or they're on a maintenance cycle that has to be met or they've got a license that they have to deal with. They might be doing a server migration. They might be doing upgrades. They might be doing infrastructure improvements. They they might have big projects that they're doing on their own and this just doesn't fit in with that. Or it's possible, and this this is something that I've definitely seen, where the people who approach IT will say, oh, we just need this to be done. But it's like this thing that they want to be done is perhaps impossible or huge. it is huge or sometimes it requires some significant infrastructural changes. Well, Im imagine showing up and saying, hey, by the way, we've got this brand new CMS. Don't worry, you don't have to do anything. Oh my God. <laughs> the vendor hosts it. All we need is you just need to integrate Shibboleth with it. <laughs> right. I've seen that too. <laughs> and you're on an LDAP campus. I I think um anyone who says that is no big deal, the vendor's handling it. I, I always want to say, like, okay, well then you can handle the support tickets that come in for it. <laughs> but it's th those kind of you know, if you're not involving these people and you're not making sure they're all on the same page with you. Your vendor is going to tell you the whole time, and, and just to explain, Shibboleth is a single sign-on uh, protocol, mm -hmm. so uh, large organizations will use it to make it so that you use the same login for all of the different things. Fairly widely used, fairly widely known. If a vendor says, oh yeah, 
we can absolutely support your existing logins. You'll just have your IT staff, you know, set up the Shibboleth connector and you'll be good to go. And your marketing team or whoever is in charge of the purchase says, great. And then you yeah. show up and nobody stopped to think, maybe we should have made sure that is the one we use. Uh, right. Or maybe it's just a straight up matter of, yeah, we do have Shibboleth, but we don't just connect it to random third parties. You know, there may be security <laughs> concerns that have to come into play and all this. And they may say, yeah, we can do it, but you're going to have to undergo a security audit. You have to have, you know, this, uh -huh. you, you're, we're going to have to have this kind of test. You know, we're going to bring in some folks and they're going to do a pin test. They're going to do these things. We have to have, you know, such and such a verification from them. And they're telling you that's going to take six months just by itself to get through. And you're supposed to launch mm -hmm. in two weeks. Because you were yeah. told that, oh, well, you'll just have them turn on Shibboleth and it'll, it takes them an hour. Well, yeah, it does if there's nothing in the way. And sometimes organizations have stuff in the way. D don't ever let a vendor tell you how easy something will be to do. They, they should, not without your own IT people being in the room. Every IT, I, I don't care what where you work, your situation is a special, unique snowflake and has its own uh, weird quirks and everything that have developed through the process of your institution or business you know coming to life they're all different in different ways i i would worry less about you know the listeners being the ones who would fall prey to that and they would be on the receiving mm. end of the folks who did yeah and that's where it's like you just have to be ready to ask those questions and be ready to at the outset say whatever timeline you're coming to me with if this is the first i'm hearing about it we need to mm -hmm. adjust expectations and make sure we sit down and go over this. And here's why most, you know, in most cases explaining why something has to be slowed down mm -hmm. or, or won't make a deadline is all that is required to make that be true. And we sometimes feel like we don't want to have that conversation or it's not going to be well received or anything like that, but lying and saying oh yeah we'll get it and then missing the <laughs> deadline or whatever that's way worse and, oh i don't do that yeah. and i'm a firm believer in also not necessarily taking the blame for other people's you know what is the uh your yeah. lack of planning does not constitute an emergency on my part <laughs> emergency yeah i'm a firm believer in that and i will do everything i can to help you be successful but I'm also not going to be unrealistic. And if I think something that you think is going to take a day, but I think is going to take a month, mm -hmm. I'm not going to compromise and say it's going to take a week. I'm going to tell you it's going <laughs> to take a month. And next time we're going to have to sit down and talk about this. Here's why I can't do it faster. And here's how you can help me do it faster next time. If, if you have a situation where you're getting like surprise web work with short deadlines, and not every place does this. I have worked for some that do, but I, I did work for one. It was in higher ed a long time ago. And um, I spoke to, I think it was the vice chancellor or it was, it was some, one of the higher ups. And I, I just sent an email and said, Hey, look, the moment anyone says the word website, you must immediately get someone from my team in the room. They need to just be in the room, just listening and just like so that they're aware of what's going on this needs to happen because what was happening was that they would go through months of meetings about this web stuff and there'd be stuff for that wasn't even possible and then they would come to us and say like hey we need, we've got uh you know you've got two months to implement this thing and then it's like we can't even do this 
You should have been bringing us in six months and ago. And the challenge to that is, right, to the stakeholders' viewpoint, that is now a project that has taken eight months. Yeah. But they don't understand, you know, the, the, from a lot of the stakeholders' standpoints, like, they don't care. That's And they don't. They shouldn't have to, uh, quite yeah. frankly, in, in many cases. But that's sort of that outward vision, and that's where, like, having that PM involved, we do the same thing for what it's worth. Like, it's mm-hmm. there, I've sat through a lot of meetings that, aren't necessarily a valuable use of my time like in that moment but it's always mm-hmm. good to have that ear because yeah. it's gonna pick up time when i know oh hey i remember them talking about this i can let other folks know hey here's what i heard you know this is probably going to be coming in the next couple of weeks let's kind of make sure we ask those some questions leading up to that mm-hmm. and those kinds of opportunities come up all the time and it just requires somebody to make sure they've got their Google Hangout left open and they're listening while they're writing some code or something. To go back to your your comment earlier about the LDAP versus Shibboleth thing, if you were in that meeting, you would have heard them say like, oh yeah, like the, the vendor says that we can integrate this with Shibboleth, it should be super easy. Then you can immediately just you know raise your hand and say like, uh, okay, Clay, so we don't use Shibboleth, we use LDAP. So that is going to be a a blocker here this is the things that would have to happen first for this to happen. And you can nail that right in the beginning. Right. And, and maybe it's as simple as them shipping you a different connector, you know? It could yeah. be a very simple yeah. fix at that point. But just having that presence in the room, even if you do nothing other than, like, just listen and take notes, it's just for those one single moments that you can stop bad ideas from germinating. <laughs> so... The other thing you can do to always help a website redesign, and I'm a big fan of this, um, if you go back and listen to our Ten Commandments of UX, um, it's one of the commandments of UX that was listed. Find reference models. Steal stuff. Look for ideas that match what people want. Um, Especially if somebody says, well, I don't like something. Okay, well, help me understand what you do like. Give me you know, three websites that do the thing that you want us to do and how they do it so I can look at what they're doing as a mm-hmm. reference model and pick out exactly what that common thread is. So yeah, this works really well for users that aren't good at articulating, you know, UI lingo and or like experience type stuff by them saying, okay, yeah, if you go to, you know, suchandsuch.com and, and thisplace.org and, and all this and look at the way they do it, if you're, you know, experienced at web development, you built stuff, you can you can look at those things and say, "Oh, I see what he's doing." The, getting reference models for that stuff is incredibly useful because it just helps center ideas and lets you attach because the reality is and again, laws of UX, <laughs> most people are doing stuff on other sites, not yours. Um we've said this before and it's worth reiterating. Make sure you are communicating all the time. Like yeah. literally, like I'm in the middle of a project right now. It's not a redesign. Um, it's a redesign of a tool, but not of a site. Uh, but as we are doing this uh, redesign of the tool, we have daily meetings with the stakeholder. Five minutes. It's not mm-hmm. an hour. It's not a half hour. Five minutes. We pull them into a meeting just real quick to say, here's what we've done today. Here's what we can show you right now. And get feedback on, does everything look like it should? Great, we'll see you tomorrow. 
don't when you're communicating with your stakeholders and management and leadership, don't fall into the trap of making linear projections. My experience with redesigns is that the power law and Pareto principles both apply here. You're going to have, um, we had, uh, uh, let's see, we, one of the redesigns we did, I think we had, I want to say there was 10,000 pages, something like that. But I would say easily 80% of them I, I finished in one day. It was just a matter of just changing the template that the pages used. And the remaining 20% took five months. If you're telling them like, oh, we have this many pages done and this is our progress. Um, it's not going to be like a linear crunch of time. There are going to be like a, a very small number of areas that are going to require a whole lot of work because the, the new HTML template you're doing, either it can't be done uh, with a find replace or a regex replace or anything like that, or it just requires a lot of reworking or something. There's always going to be something. I like the idea of the five minute meetings in part because it, it gives you the opportunity to manage those expectations and say, yeah, we've made progress on another thousand pages today. Just remember, once we get through the next 5,000, it's going to slow down because now we get to the yeah. hard. Like, yeah. You can reinforce that message frequently. And yes. with only five or ten minutes to sit down and just go over what's been done for the day, there's not a yeah. lot of time to get caught in the weeds as a result either. I, I would even go so far as to do like um like if you're gonna do if you want to do any kind of chart or like progress graph at all, like do a do a logarithmic one, you know like the, you know the the first the first block is all of the easy files and that takes you know the smallest chunk and then the next order of magnitude is like the next block and and so on, um really communicate that like the density of challenge is going to escalate as you go on. Because otherwise it's going to, you're going to get to like 95% and then it's gonna be like, it's been three weeks and you're only at 96%. And it's like, well. <laughs> and be clear about the things that you don't know too. Like you will always run into certain amounts of work that are either going to require you to learn a new tool or require a change in implementation to something you're not used to. And those mm -hmm. unknown unknowns, um, or, you know, sometimes the known unknowns can still have a clock associated with them that isn't fully registered yet. We aren't omniscient on some of that. Part of that means taking a really good inventory of what you have. Um, that could be as simple as, you know, writing out, uh, making, compiling a full list of every file you have that has to be changed. That's, that's the typical one I would start with, I think. <laughs> Inventories are tough, though, because they're so big. Whether it's, you yeah. know, file inventories, content inventories, you know. If you've got mm -hmm. 100,000 pages on your website, which may sound like a lot to a lot of folks, but isn't for many sites, uh, that's very right. hard to take an audit of. And even, you know, when you start getting into hundreds of pages, if they are legitimate pages, you know, and they have to be there for a number of reasons, you're logging metadata, you're logging page titles, descriptions, meta images, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. There gets to be a point where you're working at a scale where you cease to be as productive. And that that's where that challenge of, yeah. again, going back to this idea of aligning uh, your content strategy, make sure that's all part of this. Because in theory, if, you, if your content is going to be involved in a redesign, uh, then you need content people also dedicated who will be doing the work to, you know, maybe you have to change the way certain... Uh, uh, 
phrases are used. We've had that happen where like a, a product was rebranded. And so as a consequence, yeah. every usage of the old phrase had to be swapped out for the new one. <laughs> and there are things like it, that that content people, for the exact, exact same way as uh, IT folks, they need time and lead up to be able to prepare mm-hmm. that if they have to scan all of these pages for those references, they need to know that. If you have application code, like whether it's uh, inline form processing in PHP, or if you have Rails apps that use your site template, or if you have you know Cold Fusion code, or I don't know how far back you want to get. I mean, if you have stuff that's not just basic HTML that has like you know some dynamism to it, that's gonna, um, I guess, take a note of how many of those kinds of pages you have because those are gonna be some potential hazards. Yeah. Or uh, time sucks. It's also a great opportunity, though, to tackle a lot of things. So, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing a redesign, it's the perfect opportunity to take that time and make sure you're including good accessibility techniques into the mix. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, one of the big things that always comes out of these conversations is they want to redesign because they need to improve their SEO. Yeah. I'm going to let that slide. That's a That's a relatively <laughs> okay... <laughs> tactical goal that you want to drive more organic traffic everybody wants more organic traffic but by utilizing ex- good accessibility patterns what you're going to do is drive up your seo because you're ensuring your content reads well to anything and that's yeah. the best possible opportunity to do that and also make sure that you're not going backwards on it right plus it's you know it's I- implementing better accessibility a11y stuff 508 stuff you know you're gonna have to when you if you wanted to do that anyways you need to touch every file on the site anyways and so the the overhead is already there you're already touching every file on the site so adding a tiny little bit of doing like an accessibility audit and identifying some low-hanging fruit you know it's that's like easy work if you're gonna do it all then do it all yeah, why not? I mean, you're really not going to add that much time onto the end, the thing at the end. So I've I've said a lot about why I hate the idea of wholesale redesigns. I I keep saying, you know, they're a waste of time, they're a waste of money, they're a waste of resources cuz it it's like getting tired of your house and deciding that you're going <laughs> to tear your house down and build a new one instead of just moving your furniture around. Change the carpet, paint a room, fix the roof. You can do these things on a house incrementally for good reason. And we can do the same thing with websites. And it's mm-hmm. been the growing trend to encourage this idea of just doing redesigns, but you do them incrementally. You do them in very small bite-sized chunks a little bit at a time. Arguably, yeah. it's been very hard to do that to this point because the speed with which the web changes causes yeah. sites to become severely outdated fairly fast. and from you know 2000 to 2012 13 that actually was i think the sort of flavor of the day you would walk into a site and it would be already be outdated and mm-hmm. you were stuck using uh let's say adobe contribute as your content editing <laughs> platform and you need to move into an actual cms you know there was a lot of this stuff that was shifting and moving very quickly Front-end techniques changed very fast. Technology was updated. 
2015, you get uh, the update to JavaScript came out and, and made new things possible. So it was a very tumultuous time, I think, for developers in general. Even though we were saying mm -hmm. this back then, we said this exact thing then, but people were still dealing with that fact that they would look at their whole site and they're like, I would love to work incrementally, but I don't even know where to start because everything is old. I think today that's different. I think things have slowed down. And I, I think yeah. we're getting to a place where we're talking about tools and techniques that do let us start thinking very seriously about how we start changing things slowly and steadily and uh, strategically over time. One thing that my current employer does that I think is pretty awesome with that, with incremental redesign, is we, we run a lot of experiments like A-B tests yeah. where we'll we'll try, you know, on a form, we'll try like, what happens if we use like this plugin when they're filling out this data? Like, does this result in more form conversions? And then we can look at the data, we can run it on a subset of our users and look at two weeks of data on it and see... Does it make a difference or not? And then we can make decisions and kind of improve things based on that. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. I'll throw a link in the show notes to an article from Monster Insights that goes over how to get started using Google Optimized Trend A-B tests. Because hmm, the nice. A-B test is the keystone to doing good incremental changes. Yeah, it really is. So here's the thing, right? This idea that if you... Don't redesign if you don't do anything to a site, it spoils. And we've used phrases before to describe this. Um, you know, phrases like content rot, code rot. <laughs> you, you put a bowl of fruit on the table, it just, it goes bad over time. And websites do the same thing. The designs get dated, the techniques, you know, think about the way we used to use drop shadows and gradients and color mm -hmm. palettes. Um, the way graphics were approached. You know, all of these things change over time. And you go back and look at an old site that hasn't been maintained well, and you can see this kind of just breakdown of it. This incremental approach, what that's because that's the thing, that's what triggers somebody to say, well, we got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They look right. at the site, and it, it is. It has gotten so bad that you have no choice but to redesign. And yeah. the sad thing that is not acknowledged is we failed to produce a plan out of our last redesign that kept us in motion. You should never be uh, filling up a bowl of fruit and thinking, this is the only fruit I'm ever going to need. Yeah. Like, it, it, you know, like you take, you, you eat the apple, you replace the apple later. Like you do parts of it over time. I think it's a t-shirt idea. The reality is where full redesigns are wildly inefficient, incremental redesigns are probably the most efficient way you can po possibly approach design. Most cost-effective, certainly. It's tough because from month one to month three, your site's not going to really look any different. From yeah. month one to month 12, it probably will. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's that slow yeah. burn kind of change, and it doesn't feel super effective you know, to marketing or to your um, you know, management team or whomever, but it's designed to do that it's designed to be able to go tweak things adjust measure run your a b test pick something that you think isn't working well figure out what the best way is to do it and then make that change that one individual change because here's the thing when you've got 
an incremental change that is on a single element or a single type of pattern, you can measure that. When you change your whole mm -hmm. site in a redesign, it, all the KPIs in the world don't really help you measure <laughs> everything. The important part of that is that when you're doing A-B testing, it's it's not just that you're asking questions, it's that you're asking questions. Like you're you're actually approaching the problem in kind of, kind of a sort of scientific or experimental experimental way where you're looking at the actual like enumerated issues. And so like it's good it's good that you are testing something, but the important part there is that you're approaching it in that way. Instead of just, I don't like this. The reason this is true and the reason it works is for you know, any time you've ever done any kind of science, you know, science experiment in school mm -hmm. or something. And when they teach you about, you know, multivariate testing versus, you know, single variable. When, oh, when you yeah. change your whole website, you've changed a bunch of variables all at once. And even right. if your leads go up or your sales go up or whatever... By changing everything at once, it makes it immeasurably harder to actually know why that yeah. happened. You can guess, right. and you can figure out a way to make the analytics explain it, but one thing you'll learn over time is that analytics can say a lot of things if you just push them the right way. <laughs> when you're changing one thing at a time, it ensures that the one thing you're changing is producing the right outcome. Yeah. That's the bottom line to that. And it means you're making the smallest, most efficient moves that you can make mm -hmm. uh, because you pick and choose, right? You may have a list of things you want to change, but you're going to start with the ones you think will make the biggest changes and you're going to work down that list. And over time, right. what happens is you're going to find out, well, something failed. We thought making a change to our lead form and adding a certain field would help us get better leads. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. It ended up getting worse leads because they were less well-defined for some reason. Or people abandoned. You added a form field. They abandoned the field, uh, the form more. That's fine because that means you can abandon that change and figure out a better one with that information you made. If you go through a full website redesign and your sales go down, then what do you do? Incremental redesigns let you fail in a much more elegant way and in a way that lets you learn and get better, which is, I think, one of the most important pieces of web design that we really aren't good at yet as an industry. I was just thinking that as you're doing these experiments and as you're making these incremental changes, a while ago, and I forget which episode it was, and I I can't find the number for it here, but uh, we talked about architectural design records. Mm -hmm. This is a, a great place to kind of log that history. If you have, if you are keeping an ADR for your site, that's a great place to log these experiments and the outcomes of them. And just kind of having that as part of your, as sort of your institutional knowledge base. The Speaking of knowledge bases, uh, the final big piece, I think, of this puzzle is when you're doing incremental work, and I said earlier that, you know, I think the one reason that this approach has changed in general is because things are stabilizing a little bit. I think it's because mm -hmm. we're maturing as an industry and you can see it by us learning to develop design systems, building out pattern libraries, yeah. 
because that gives us sort of the uh that source of truth for our websites. Yeah. And so the pattern library may define all the headers on the website. And maybe we are at a point where somebody does say, "Hey, we want to change kind of the look and feel of the site. What can you do for us?" You could go in and say, "You know what? Yeah. Here's the three style of headers that we have. Why don't we update that pattern?" We'll use we'll use a yeah. different font for this. You know, we we're only using this font here. It feels out of place. Let's make it match the font down below. But we'll do you know such and such to it. I think the the, the thing we talked about in episode forty with the state of CSS. This this if you want to help make your redesigns more efficient, have really clean HTML. It will make it so much easier. So much yeah. easier. And anytime you've got that record, and I think you know the pattern library is where it really starts because at the end of the day it's all about efficiency and it's about identifying patterns not pages. Uh, you'll find yourself mm -hmm. in a redesign figuring out layouts. Well, we need a two column layout, we need a three column layout. We're going to need this weird four column layout, but it's only going to be used on this one page. That's an inefficient way to go about design because columned layouts are easy. What matters are the cards that go on and what matters are the individual mm -hmm. elements that are embedded there and giving the attention to those because those are the thing where the rubber meets the road in terms of our forms. Here's our form pattern. Mm -hmm. And you can target all of these things and that pattern library becomes this growing, evolving utility that whenever somebody says, hey, can we do X? You're able to pull out the book, so to speak, and say, yep, we got three ways to do it. <laughs> Which one do you want? And if they say, oh, none of those are real good, then you can sit down and say, can we, maybe we have an opportunity then. And we'll, we'll use yeah. that as that growth point to add in the new feature. What, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Let's work that in. Right. And we'll, we'll make a, a tweak to that element instead of you coming and saying, you know what? We're going to build a whole landing page for this. Well, we don't need to do a whole <laughs> thing for it. Let's do the small thing. <laughs> And we have that that sort of flower bed to work with there. Eventually, you're going to come up and somebody's going to say, you know what, you, we need a whole new CMS. The CMS we're using is no good. And that's going to necessitate a lot of background work and some other stuff's going to get thrown in there. Some redesign stuff's probably going to happen. But until you have that really good, got to rebrand, you got to do X, Y, or Z that is truly necessary... This gets you from point A to point Z by going through every other letter in the alphabet first. And it lets you look ahead of you and look behind you and know sort of what that path looks like. Yeah. All right, folks, kick back. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and we will round things out and talk to you later. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. 
One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. I hope you found this helpful. I know this was a weird rambling episode for a change, but um, <laughs> we just felt like kind of talking about our experience here, and uh, hopefully it's, you know, you got something out of it. If you ever have questions for us, let us know. Um, we're happy to kind of ex- explain anything we went into and, you know, give you some advice if you feel like you're in a tough spot with your theory design. <laughs> come, come, come reach out with us. Uh, and I'm not just segueing into social here, but... Seriously, connect with us on, on Twitter at Facebook.com slash If you're doing a redesign and you just want to, like, share the pain or, like, talk to people who have been through it a bunch, please. Vint. You know, come chat with us on Slack, DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. Uh, I don't think that Instagram is really the correct form for this, but you're welcome to come talk with us or, or check us there anyways. Instagram.com slash UX podcast and if you are feeling so inclined run into your app of choice wherever you're listening to the show today hit your thumbs up uh, give us a rating review share the episode uh, anything just to let us know that you're enjoying things and to let other people know that you're enjoying things uh, we appreciate it we hope you appreciate uh, all the effort that we put into it and um, if you don't, then let us know that, and we'll change something, maybe. I don't know. Uh, we, we'll do what we can. Uh, outside of that, uh, let me see. It's it's late at night. I've got some empty bottles sitting here I need to throw away. Uh, I've got to probably go use the restroom at some point. Uh, then I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> I know, I know, TMI, but... The, <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse than that because I, I have really TMI because the the big thing that uh, I have to end the show with is just let you know that you got to keep your personas close and <laughs> your users closer. Uh, well played. That that might be my favorite one yet. Well done. 